Good morning. We're thankful that you're here with us this morning for a final set of teachings in our Seek the Peace of the City series. We will continue this theme, though, for a couple more weeks. Our Christmas Eve services, both at the Hokessen campus and at Loma Coffee, are themed around peace on earth. And our New Year's Day service here will be a day of worship, praying, and reflection for peace in the upcoming year. It'll be sort of a pray for the peace of the city um, Sunday, and that's on January 1st right here uh, at the DCCA. So uh, we'll be praying then for both our interpersonal peace, but also the peace of our community, uh, the peace of our city, and the peace of our world. So we certainly encourage you to join us on January 1st for that very special service. I said a moment ago that today we will have a set of teachings, and that is because today's thoughts are going to be presented to you by two of our deacons, Matt Dixon and Dan Coleman. Over the past several weeks, we have discussed peace on several levels. First, we talked about the meaning of the Old Testament word peace, that is shalom, and how it represents something different than a lack of conflict, that it, that it means wholeness or fullness. It means being all that God created us to be. Then we moved into a discussion of peace with God and how peace with God through Jesus represents a kind of cornerstone in our lives that cannot be moved. Now, we can sometimes feel like that cornerstone is being pressed against, that it's being shaken, but the promises of God are that the cornerstone, once placed, cannot be shaken, cannot be moved, that our peace with God is secure. But yet, at the same time, we discussed how we sometimes don't feel the peace of God. So even though we feel and know we have the peace with God, sometimes the peace of God can be disruptive, but disrupted. And then lastly, uh, we discussed last week peacemaking on a large scale, focusing on how our culture in two important ways confuses peacemaking with peacekeeping. We learned that peace without truth and peace without tr- justice is always going to represent a kind of lesser peace. And so that we want to have peace with truth and peace with justice. And when we have that, then we are actually engaged in peacemaking as opposed to sometimes a lesser kind of peace that we experience with peacekeeping. So we take these two broader ideas into our meditations today, both of which will continue to be from Matthew 5. Last week we looked at Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. And today we will continue in Matthew 5, asking ourselves, what does it mean to make peace in individual relationships, in individual conflicts? What should be our spirit? What should we watch out for? Matt and Dan will be sharing some principles of peacemaking, and these are not steps as if they're in some kind of order, but rather elements or aspects that are likely needed if you hope to make peace in your relationships. So Matt's going to share first, then we'll have a few minutes to reflect on what Matt said, and then Dan will close us in a few minutes. Good morning. Like Rick said, today we're going to spend a few minutes talking about how to be a peacemaker when it comes to our relationships with others. Um, I'm here this morning to share with you the first four points of how to be a peacemaker. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, and we'll go ahead and read together from verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, 
and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going out with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now many of you probably recognize this passage as being from the Sermon on the Mount. As you read through the full sermon, um, you'll notice it's broken down into a series of individual teachings. Um, and many of those will start with a phrase like this, um, you have heard it was said. Um, and what this is, is Jesus drawing their attention to the law that they've been taught for generations. And then Jesus takes that law and he takes it a step further. But I tell you, to get to the heart of the teaching that the crowd of the Pharisees were already familiar with. In this section, we're, we're going to stop and find the first principle of being a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker, you need to have a deep and thorough understanding of Scripture so that you can recognize when you're not at peace and understand how to make peace. Now, this understanding of Scripture needs to be deep. Um, how many times in history have we seen a shallow understanding of Scripture or Scripture being used out of context um, result in a lack of peace? Uh, atrocities like genocide and slavery and murder and racism. Scripture has been used to justify all of these evil things and, and countless others, um, simply because scripture was not applied correctly. To understand scripture, you need to know what scripture says, not just chapter and verse, um, but also in totality, and then study and meditate so that you can more, under, uh, more fully understand the spirit of the text. Take the time to understand the cultural and historic context of the text as well. Um, and this way you'll be able to apply it more deeply um, to the way that you interact with others by understanding the whole story um, of what that passage is trying to teach. You know, and this way you can take a text, um, like in, in this example that Jesus takes, that says, do not murder. And you can apply that to your daily life, even if you're not, um, even if you've never thought about killing somebody. Um, you're able to take that, that piece of scripture uh, and apply it in some way. Scripture reveals to us the character of God. Um, and without understanding the character of God and the person of Christ, we will not be able to make Christ-like peace with our brothers and sisters around us. It's just not possible. So this is our first principle, that you need to possess a deep understanding of Scripture to be a peacemaker. The second principle is that you need to first make peace with your own emotions. The crowd knows that the Scriptures say, do not murder, but Jesus builds onto that idea to say, don't even be angry with your brother. Don't harbor negative emotions towards other people. Maybe you aren't an angry person. Um, I don't think I'd describe myself as angry, but I, I do get frustrated. Um, I feel annoyed. I can act out passive-aggressively towards others. Um, so this text here uses the word anger, um, but replace that with you know, any number of non-peaceful emotions that you personally might feel with someone else. My company and uh, my day job deals with some very high-maintenance clients. Um, we have customers that make very unreasonable requests, things that are maybe impossible to accomplish. Um, and sometimes you get some of these requests in an email, and it's just infuriating. Um, you know, how can they ask for this? You know, they weren't listening, they didn't read the last email. Um, and my immediate gut reaction is to quickly bang out a response and put that person in their place. Like, no, we already talked about this. No, you know that we can't do that. Um, but I was talking to a coworker of mine, and he gave me this piece of advice. Um, he said, I'll never, I've never regretted sending an email that I've waited a day to send. 
And I think this is good advice, not only in email, but also in speaking with other people and the way that we interact with someone um, that has hurt us or that we have hurt. When you're angry or frustrated, um, or if you need to make peace, first take a deep breath. Take a minute, take a day. Don't act out on your emotions. Collect yourself um, so that you can focus on what the real issue is and so that you're in a place where you can, um, you actually desire to make peace with that person. Two weeks ago, we read Philippians 4, 4 to 7 together, which talks about how we can have joy, peace, and gentleness through the fruits of the Spirit because the Lord is near, that the peace of the Lord transcends our emotions and gives us the ability to experience joy uh, and gentleness even when our emotions are not in that place. We're actually going to focus on the next section where Paul continues in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So this might sound like Sunday school advice, um, maybe a little cliche, but when your emotions are high, reflect back on the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about things that are true and noble and right and lovely. Pray that the Lord will be near, that he'll give you peace. Seek forgiveness from him for your negative attitude and the thoughts that you have towards other people. And then seek to make peace and get forgiveness from your your brother. True reconciliation is only possible when we're able to elevate the peace of God above our human emotions. So that's the second principle, to make peace with your emotions first. The third principle is to take the step of reconciliation. If you look at Matthew 5.23, Jesus says to leave your gift at the altar, stop worshiping, drop what you're doing, and seek reconciliation. There's two things I think to look at uh, in this verse. First, notice how Jesus does not say, next time you see this person, maybe you should consider reconciling. No, peacemaking requires action. You need to actively take the step of reconciliation. Seek that person out. Seek to make peace. Later in Matthew 5, Jesus instructs us to pray for our enemies. Um, That's not really the teaching here. Uh, The teaching here is a person that you have wronged. You need to take a physical step um, to make peace or reconcile with that person by seeking them out. I think the second thing to note uh, from this passage uh, is that not being at peace with others interferes interferes with our ability to worship. How can we ask for forgiveness from God when we aren't willing to forgive uh, others around us? I mean, practically speaking, how much more difficult is it to come into this space and worship on a Sunday morning when you've had a, a tough time at home, maybe getting ready um, to come to church, or someone cuts you off on the way on the way in, or you're getting off at 95. Um, if you have these these negative emotions, these angers, these frustrations, um, this unwillingness to forgive, it interferes with your ability to connect with the Lord and to worship. You need to take the action of seeking reconciliation with others so that you can freely worship and you're able to thank God for his forgiveness. <clears throat> so that's our third principle. So one of my least favorite chores in my house um, is doing dishes. Uh, my wife will attest to this. 
It's not a secret. I don't really know why. It's not very hard to do dishes. It doesn't take very long to do them. Um, I will say that I am, uh, by nature, a bit of a soaker. I like to put the dishes in the sink and let them soak, let the water work its magic for a couple of nights uh, before I have to grab a sponge and start scrubbing. However, the problem with this approach uh, is that it lets the dishes stack up. Not everything gets soaked and some things need to be scrubbed, a little elbow grease to, to get them clean. What would have been a five minute task ends up being a 30 or 40 minute job to you know, clean the dishes and scrub the ones that are, are hard and, and dry dishes so there's room for other dishes. And, and you know, I end up thinking to myself, if only I had washed this dish the day that I made it dirty. So I'm sure you can see where this is going. Um, the fourth principle is attempt to reconcile quickly. Jesus finishes this portion of the teaching by saying uh, to settle legal matters quickly, um, while you're still on the way to court even, so that you won't be thrown into prison. The penalty is much greater if you don't go out of your way to quickly settle. Even though this example is legal, you can see how this would apply to other disputes that you might have. You know, anger or frustration can lead to bitterness and resentment and hatred, um, or even worse, um, you know, things that are much more difficult to reconcile. You know, don't let a, a bunch of small annoyances or frustrations build up. Not reconciling quickly allows for sin to build on top of itself, and it grows inside you and becomes much harder to overcome. You, know, you don't have to read the news very long to find an actual murder case that was literally due to someone being angry. You know, this, this teaching here is not a stretch. So that's the fourth and, and final principle that I'll share with you. Attempt to reconcile quickly. One story in scripture um, that I think shows these principles pretty well is the story of David and Mephibosheth. We're not going to read it this morning, um, just for time, but you can find that in 2 Samuel 9 uh, if you want to look it up later. Mephibosheth is the crippled son of Jonathan. Um, he was made lame in both feet. Uh, in an accident when he was uh, a child. He was actually dropped when his family was fleeing um, from King David after Saul um, had died. However, many years later, um, David finds him. He restores to him all the land that Saul, his grandfather, owned and actually invites him to sit at the king's table um, to eat meals for the rest of his life. So in this passage... You know, we first see David remembering an oath that he made to Jonathan um, to show kindness to his family. Even though Jonathan's father, Saul, was David's worst enemy, he puts aside any emotions that he might have towards Saul or about Saul to fulfill this oath. He then actively takes steps to find Mephibosheth and brings him into his presence. And the text implies that all of this takes place as soon as David gets back from, from battles, uh, securing the kingdom. Um, so the minute that he is, he you know has a moment here. He's seeking out Mephibosheth to make peace. Mephibosheth's response to David here is, "Who am I that you should notice a dead dog like me?" You know what David did here was, you know, going so much beyond like a reconciliation. Um, they're showing um, just a great kindness that's unexpected to Mephibosheth. Um, in order to, to reconcile um, you know, this oath that he had. 
And this is why, the, why we need to seek to be peacemakers. We need to make peace with our brothers and sisters because our king actively sought to make peace with us even though we are a broken and undeserving people. We do not deserve to sit at the table with the king. But yet he has allowed us to do that because he made peace with us. I would just like you to think about a person that you might currently not be at peace with. You know, just ask the Lord to show you the steps that you need to take in order to make peace with this person. Um, and just ask that he bring someone to mind um, that you can apply these principles to. So Matt had four points that he spoke on, and I only have the one, so make of that whatever you will. Um, the fifth point when it comes to making peace is love your enemies. Um, this idea of loving your enemies reminded me of a story that happened to me a while ago. My dad grew up in a small 400-person town in South Carolina, and we spent holidays down there, Easter, Christmas, traveling down. Um, and I had a cousin, Robert, who was about my age, and we just did everything together. We played together all the time, and we were friends. He was he was my cousin, and we saw each other not too often, but we, get, we were kids, and we played, and we got along, and... Um, Life passes by, and you start making the trips less often as you start getting older. And you go to college and can't make it with the family. And it had been a few years since we had seen each other. And, uh, I went down with my parents. We were visiting Robert's parents, my aunt and uncle. And uh, he came in the in the room. He's dressed in camo from head to toe. And we jump up and say, hey, it's been a long time. And we kind of shoot the breeze for a second. And Robert asked me, hey, do you, you want to come hunting with me? And I looked at him and I said, I've, I've never been hunting before. And this silence passes between us where we stare at each other and think, who are you? You know, we're the same family. We're the same age. We just live in two different worlds um, with different activities. And at some point I became a computer science major and he didn't. And, you know, it's, it was just different. Um, and that reminds me so much of Jesus's instruction to us that we're going to look at today, um, talking about loving our enemies. We as believers following the instruction of Christ live in a different world than other people. We have different motivations. We have different goals. We're the same. We're people, but at the same time, we don't understand each other. When we're in conflict with another person who is against us, whether it's socially or in a place of power, they don't like you. If it's just conflict with a neighbor, how do we make peace? What does Jesus have to say on this? Read with me Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Before we can start to unpack what Jesus is saying here, we have to figure out who is our enemy. 
Um, often we think of Nazis, not our neighbors. We think of pe- people selling people into slavery. We think of terrorists. We don't think of family members and coworkers. I think we undersell what's evil. You don't have to sell someone into slavery. Gossiping and destroying relationships is evil. Sabotaging someone's job, that is evil. All an enemy is, is someone who's actively opposed or hostile to us. So sitting right here, taking that definition and moving it down a couple notches into the realm of reality, can you think of anyone in your life who has been hostile to you? Like, they don't have to be enemies for for life. It can be someone from the past. They don't have to be trying to kill you. Our definition of enemy is skewed outside the realm of every day. Um, and I think that skews our understanding of what Jesus is teaching about them here. We have enemies. We have people who contend against us actively. So if Jesus is just talking about someone opposed to us when he says enemy, What's his instruction about making peace with these people? Look back at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We we don't even just nothing our enemies. We go beyond retribution or just a malaise, we go to kindness. We love enemies. We bless in the face of cursing. We pray for people who spitefully use us and persecute us. And love here, it's more than just a feeling that washes over us, right? We, we tend to think of love as just this thing that happens and no one can control it. Um, but you realize the instruction doesn't make any sense if that's the case. Jesus says, all right, you love. And so if love isn't a decision that we're making, if it's not something that we play a role in, then the instruction makes no sense. There was a a show I was watching on Netflix recently, um, kind of a one-man show, and uh, he kept making the comment, um, you can't help who you love. And I say, no, (laughs) that's not the case. It's not just the thing that comes over us. It's a decision that we make when someone at work throws you under the bus because they don't want to take the blame for something. It's a decision that results in action. We are kind. We don't take revenge or freeze people out. If someone saw the way that you treat a person, they can judge whether or not there is love for them or not. Christ says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even the second line there, pray for those who persecute you. We go beyond. We take the person who was against us and we lift them up to God. We bring them to him and say, God, hear your blessings. God, hear, fix, repair. Why would we do this, though? Because this is not... If you're like me, this is not what you naturally um, are going to come to. And Jesus addresses that as well on the next verse. Look in verse 45. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That's 
That's key. Do you hear the intimacy there? Not that you'll be followers of your father in heaven, not that you'll be disciples, um, that you will be sons and daughters. We show kindness in the face of evil because we want to be like our dad. Every family has a unique way of doing things, right? They celebrate holidays differently. They fight differently. They have a morning routine that's different. They treat others differently. Each family um, is unique in that way. And all you have to do is live with someone from outside your family for the first time to realize that all of the assumptions you make about life are wrapped up in your family. Um, I think everyone as a kid too had that family who they, they looked at and were like, oh, that would be so great. Uh, for me, it was the Dunaways. It was a family at church. Uh, they had a son who was my age and, uh, I just thought his family was awesome. They they always had Snapple in the house. They would take trips to Lancaster. They would do Miller's Smorgasbord together. I remember listening to the Beach Boys on the first CD player I ever saw in their living room. Um, there's nothing wrong with my family. My family's great. But there was something about the Dunaways where I said, wow, that is neat. I would That would be cool to be a part of that family. Um, and what Jesus is doing with his instruction here, is inviting us to participate in his family with God. When we love in the face of evil, we're doing life like God's family. We're doing life like our brother Christ. We're doing life like our father says it's to be done. We participate in the family of God. And God isn't asking us to do anything different than what he's already done first. Look in verse 46, or 45. Um, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good. You've got a society of people who are farmers. The sun and the rain are prosperity and life. And he says the sun rises on everyone, the good and the evil. He says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God is good and brings life, period. Now, it doesn't mean there are consequences for evil and for injustice. God is handling that. And scripture is full of assurances that God is just and will be taking care of those things. Um, All we have to do is flip to Revelation and look at Christ's second coming to see that there are consequences for actions. But when it comes to God's disposition to mankind in general, he blesses regardless of how people are treating him. The world is full of people who reject God. And there are people who um, embrace God and, and try to follow him. And the sun rises on both. The rain falls on both. God is just asking the same thing of us. He's saying, don't love conditionally because I don't. Don't associate only with people who treat you well. To those around us, we bring kindness, we bring peace, we bring shalom. Or as Jesus says it, we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus talks about a reward as well. I don't exactly know what that is. If you, I think that is 46. Um, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And then he goes on to basically say, doesn't, basically, doesn't everyone do that? 
I don't know what that reward is. I don't. Um, and Jesus doesn't say exactly. But sitting here in the context of the, the, of the passage, we're invited to be a part of the family of God. And that seems like a great start to me. But then from a day-to-day perspective, imagine that there is a person who is taking every relationship with another individual in their life and pouring love and peace into it, whether it's a good one or a toxic one, that person, their relationships will be better than the next. Love and peace will only improve relationships. Your relationships, if you follow Christ's instructions, will be better. But it can go beyond that as well. Uh, We have a big backyard uh, that has a big privacy fence around it. Uh, And we have a dog and our neighbors have dogs as well. And the dogs got into a routine of kind of just fence battling, basically. They would bark back and forth. And my neighbor's dog started going at the fence. And so the fence is getting messed up. And uh, it was a little scary for the girls sometimes. But one morning I, I looked outside and the fence was all bent out of shape and it kind of messed up and I was frustrated and I went out there and I was popping stuff back into place and trying to figure out what to do. And, um, my neighbor was also out in his backyard. He saw me there and he lit into me. Um, he started talking about how the other neighbors were talking and about how horrible our dog was and, how someone was scared we were going to poison their dogs and that it's not his fault and started talking about legal action. And I just sat there stunned and trying to calm things down. Uh, I remember intentionally talking really quiet because he was yelling. Uh, so anyway, the, the whole thing ends and I go back in the house and I'm upset and I'm unsettled and I'm thinking every everyone up and down the block doesn't like us for some reason and my doorbell rings uh and it's my neighbor he walked around and he apologized to me Uh, he said i don't want to be a neighbor the guy who's who does this Um, and we sat down on my porch and he told me how he had terminal cancer and not long to live Um, and we sat there and I was able to pray for him and I was able to share a little bit of Christ and I was able to listen to him and his fears like that's not always going to happen it's not but we get to be a part of that family that everyone looks at and, and, and envies that everyone looks at and says man I want to be a part of that family And then we get to tell people that they can because none of us were born into it. Every one of us is only in the family of God because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And we can share that with the people around us. And the people who probably most need to hear it are the people who our relationships are bad with. So think about your life. Think about who is opposing you and what you need to do this week to love them.